been Bizey for the past 16 years. This week, we'll talk to the outgoing president of the Downtown Community League. Plus, we give some airtime to airports. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 219. If you're keeping track of Troy's solar rebate, the next executive committee meeting, which is where it will likely come to, is in June. So still no news on that front. And no news in this case is bad news. And speaking of bad news, of course, fires are bad. So we're going to do the rapid fire segment. Are we tone deaf? I don't know, but we're nothing if not consistent. <laughs> Too soon. On May 6th, 2023, Edmonton will recognize the coronation of a new king as Connor McDavid will win game two versus the Golden Knights for the Edmonton Oilers, cementing his place as Edmonton royalty. That or he'll choke, take a stupid penalty, lose the game for the Oilers and be exactly as popular in Edmonton as King Charles's. Local Instagrammers and TikTokers are saying that the city has overstepped its authority and are allying to put together a charter challenge against the city of Edmonton. The group of mostly Gen Z social mediaites said in a statement, quote, We have a right to free expression and the city of Edmonton fire ban significantly infringes upon that right. Not our fault that all our posts are straight fire. The Edmonton neighborhood of Chappelle has once again led the city in snow on walk complaints for the second straight winter. The achievement has been a collaboration between two prominent community groups, the CBTT, or Chappelle Busybody Tattletales, and another group that never sets foot outside of their heated garages, the 16-month winter truthers of Chappelle. Without either of these groups existing in such abundance within Chappelle, the neighborhood would not have been able to claim this honor two years running. A Speak Municipally is a publication of Taproot Edmonton, and every week we bring you the latest on municipal affairs in our city, including what city council is up to. If you like our show, please give us a rating in your podcast app of choice. We die for your approval. Our first guest this week, and yes, that is first, is Chris Bizey, the Deckel or Downtown Edmonton Community League president for a while. And when Mac was scheduling him as a guest, I uh, asked how long. And Mac had told me 15 years, but you've been involved with the Downtown Edmonton Community League for almost 20 years now, right, Chris? Yeah, on and off since I've been living downtown, basically. So that's a long time. What went wrong in your life that encouraged you to be involved in a community <laughs> league for that long? You know what? I moved downtown. There was kind of a wave of uh, people moving downtown when some of the warehouses were being converted. Uh, City Council in 1997 passed a new downtown plan and they were giving a per-door incentive to developers. People were watching TV and seeing lofts in New York and Toronto being converted and then they saw these buildings in downtown Edmonton that were still empty or were ripe for, for redevelopment. So I bought a, a condo downtown for you know pretty cheap and from there I kind of it seemed like you know the community league system was quite well established in in Edmonton but um, there wasn't really a sense of community downtown and I just kind of saw that as an opportunity uh, to get involved. The population at the time when you moved downtown must have been pretty small for downtown. Do you recall what it was? Yeah 1997 plan I believe was about 5300. It, it grew pretty quickly after that. So we talk a lot about downtown and the boundaries being different for different orgs. In terms of the downtown Edmonton Community League, what are the boundaries of downtown? Yeah, I mean, for all intents and purposes, people, you know, what we consider downtown and, and what an average Edmontonian 
considers downtown are different. But for our league, uh, it's essentially 97th Avenue to about 105 Avenue and uh, kind of Railtown to 97th Street. Um, it's slightly different than the Downtown Business Association, who also encompasses part of Boyle in the quarters. And you became the president of Deckel in 2007. What got you into that position? Why did you decide you wanted to take over as the leader of our community league? Yeah, I, again, I just really enjoyed being involved. Our league is it's its 20th uh, year this year. So I was established as, a, as an association in 1987 with grant money from the first downtown plan and then became an official league in 2003. And, uh, you know, it was pretty small at the time. And as downtown was growing, you know, there was always kind of interesting things going on, development issues, meeting neighbors, doing programming, that kind of stuff. You know, always been very interested in, in kind of civic issues and my community and building community. So that's kind of why I got involved. And you're no longer interested in any of those things anymore because you're stepping down as president? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, unfortunately, uh, my term is up and uh, it's time for somebody else to uh, take the reins. Uh, you know, that's definitely obviously healthy for an organization uh, to have different leadership from time to time. And I'm still happy to contribute uh, however I can, but uh, it's time for somebody else to, to step up and, and, and lead the organization. Does that mean there's a term limit for the position because that's an awfly long term limit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is there is a term limit. Um, we updated our bylaws in in 2015, uh, and there is a term limit of of three terms of three years. So essentially nine years at this point. So my term was up this year. And before that, there wasn't a term limit like when you started. No, yeah, no, there wasn't. Got it. Uh, well, that's a long time. Just nine years is a long time, but the rest of it is a long time. And you've been the president through some of the most transformative changes downtown, I think it's fair to say. Obviously, there's the arena and ice district, which is pretty, you know, hopping at the moment with the uh, the playoffs on. Uh, but there's been a whole bunch of other things downtown and connections into downtown, things like the funicular and other projects. There's been not just infrastructure changes, but organizational changes, new organizations or organizations that have come and gone to be, you know, focused on downtown. I'm wondering, this might be hard to do, but is there one or two things that stand out to you? from your term as president, whether it's built form or people or whatever that really speak to you as like, this is this is what downtown's all about. Yeah, that's definitely really hard because, um, you know, people have come and go to an organization or downtown. Uh, you know, people often come downtown, start their career or, or that kind of thing, and then, then move on. And people come and go through the organization. So, um, you know, I've definitely seen friends come and go, and I definitely like the friends that I've met through the organization are the thing that that really stick in my mind. You know, is there people I'm going to know for the rest of my life? But you know, in terms of like actual physical infrastructure and stuff, I mean, you mentioned it, like uh, you know, Rogers Place Ice District um, was really uh, uh, an exciting thing to be part of. You know, it was a very divisive debate. You know, lots of different opinions. You know, fingers crossed that we would get development uh, built out of the, uh, out of that whole deal. And then subsequently from that, you know, the CRL has allowed for other in infrastructure to be built. So in particular, I think what I'm most looking forward to is is the warehouse park. That's going to be definitely a transformational project, and hopefully encourage further residential development. Chris, you're talking about developments, and there's lots of residential towers that have gone up. 
And your role as president of the Community League is really to represent residents when these kinds of proposals come forward, right? Can you maybe just for listeners explain a little bit about like, what does the president actually do? And just on that point, you know, there's differing opinions on that, um, just being that uh, we really represent our members. So we really encourage residents to join their Community League, no matter where they're living, so that they do have that voice. Uh, you know, and the community league system is very well supported in Edmonton by the city and by council most of the time. You know, we get notification of uh, development issues, civic issues that are happening downtown and coming across our desk. And um, definitely downtown more than anywhere, we deal with a lot of development issues Uh, civic projects, that kind of stuff that we're asked to consult. And we've had uh, an active uh, development committee in the past that reviews these type of applications. I'm personally interested in this kind of stuff. So I've I've always liked to kind of review what is being proposed and being involved in the Capital City Downtown update in 2010, which also reviewed the zoning and just I'm I consider myself a bit of an urban planning nerd. So I, I, downtown is definitely the place to be and, and get involved if, if you like that kind of stuff, because there's always, always stuff happening, always projects, always consultation that, that needs to be done. And, and the, the league is, is one of those uh, touch points uh, when the city is looking to consult. There's been a lot happening downtown and a lot of very um, heated discussion about downtown. Mm -hmm. Just last week, we were discussing how um, the Oliver president was saying that a lot of the public commentary around the state of safety downtown and the state of safety on transit doesn't reflect the day-to-day experience of their members. I'm wondering what your take as the DECL president is on downtown safety and the state of our downtown right now? I would say it's one of the most complex issues I've ever tried to understand. I would say before the pandemic, um, safety was a thought, but it was more of an afterthought. We were on a trajectory downtown, even even though there was, there has been um, you know downturn in Alberta's economy since 2014. Um, it was still on a trajectory where we just didn't ha- really have a huge concern around safety. There's obviously open drug use and that kind of stuff. But we've been pulled into that conversation, you know, since the pandemic started, because it's, it's kind of like everywhere. And, you know, we hear from people all the time, residents in particular, that they don't feel safe walking around downtown. So I tried to start understanding why that is, because it's not as simple as saying, well, some kind of crime or something is happening. It's a very complex issue. You have uh, houseless folks, you have people who are addicted to drugs, uh, involved in criminal activity or gangs, occupying public spaces. And how do you solve these problems? And I think it's, you know, Everyone is trying to understand and, and, and figure it out because there's so many different things that need to happen in order to solve those problems. It's not as simple as saying, well, you just need more policing or something like that. You need housing supports, you need uh, social supports, you, you need policy changes, that kind of stuff. So I'm not sure if that answers your question or not. I can't say I have all the answers, more that we are more involved in these conversations than we ever have been in the past. And I think that's an interesting point because um, I suppose we introduced you as the president of the 
downtown Edmonton Community League. I don't know your specific professional background, but as a past president of a community league, I had no qualifications whatsoever. I walked into a meeting and was acclaimed president because no one else wanted to do it. And that's the state for Mm -hmm. many community leagues across the city. Do you think the level with which Deckel has been involved in these sort of like serious social justice and addiction treatment discussions, do you think it's appropriate for community leagues to be involved at the level that they often are in Edmonton? I would say that it is, but with a caveat that, yes, you know, we're we're a bunch of volunteers and um, everyone brings a different experience or a different professional experience with them. Um, I've always been really lucky to have a, a, a board, a complement of uh, very smart folks around that really care about their community. And we're kind of figuring out these issues together. So can't say we have all the answers, but definitely um, I think it's important to be part of these discussions to provide at least some kind of, of perspective from, from residents uh, that live uh, and work downtown. I work downtown. I've always worked downtown. I have my own business. I do residential design, a custom residential design. I've been involved with the you know, development of garden suites and, and all that kind of infill as well. Um, so that's kind of where some of my urban planning interest comes from. I think it's important for, for us to be involved or residents to, to have a voice. But again, we're not professionals or some, I mean, we've had people on our board that are professionals in these fields and have helped us out immensely to, to understand some of these issues, uh, our past safety chair in particular. So uh, it just depends. You mentioned council in particular, and, and the city has always been proactive about engaging with DECL. Is that, you think, unique to the downtown community league because of the nature of things downtown? Or do you see, you know, the city's just got engaging community leagues and the people they represent, mostly residents, as just a matter of business? I think it's a couple things. The city has a formal process for engaging with community leagues on issues, in particular development. So every kind of controversial development, community leagues get a notice uh, of that kind of stuff. Any kind of uh, major consultation, they they, uh, engage with leagues around the city. So I think, like I said before, just because there's so much going on downtown, we get pulled into a lot of interesting and unique uh, discussions as well as I've you know our board and and myself I've always taken upon myself to kind of build relationships with administration and council so um, there's kind of that aspect as well so we can have that rapport and and discuss any kind of uh, issues that that crop up so you mentioned you know the formalized process by which the uh, city engages with community leagues and you had talked earlier about you know decal represents their members. They don't represent residents per se. Across the city, community league membership, I believe, is around 8 to 10%. And yet I find in a lot of council discussions, community leagues do have an outspoken effect. They're almost in Edmonton, a fourth order of government. Like you said, there's a formalized process by which community leagues get notices. Has this come up as something problematic? I mean, sure, you've been in the president's chair, but if someone more nefarious than you was elected into the community league president, are we not granting a lot of power to what amounts to a government without accountability? Um, I would not say that <laughs> community leagues. Well, let me let me think. You know, community leagues, you know, have a lot of support in the city from council administration. I've always said councillors come from two kind of streams. They either come from the community league system or they come from business. 
And so if you look at who's on council, a lot of those people have come from the community league system. And I don't know if that's a bad thing. Um, these are the people who are most engaged in their communities and with civic politics or politics in general. And yeah, that's just kind of how politics works. Well, then let's talk about that other stream because there's community and then there's business. And in downtown, well, we have a formalized process with engaging in the business community. And nowadays, that's the Downtown Recovery Coalition. Um, this is a group that has has reached prominence in the last year and a half. And you are a member of the DRC and are continuing to be a member of the DRC after stepping down, correct? Uh, yep. It's, uh, it, you know, it's a, a lobby group. And uh, it uh, represents various stakeholders downtown. The majority of the members are businesses because the majority of what happens downtown in terms of property ownership and that kind of stuff is business. I've always felt it's important for the league to be involved in these discussions to provide at least some kind of resident perspective. There's other organizations involved with this, like the Edmonton Public Library, the University of Alberta, McEwen University, Norquest. So we're all kind of working towards trying to figure out some of the issues downtown, and there's a lot of goodwill there. But for sure, the, the majority of, of folks involved are, are from the business community, and that totally makes sense being downtown. We've been somewhat critical, I would say, of the DRC on this show. Uh, over the last year and some of the positions that they've taken. And one issue in particular that came up that we felt pretty strongly about was 102nd Avenue. I wonder if you could, without, you know, naming names or, or anything, give us a sense of, you know, is, is everybody in the DRC, if there's uh, such a variety of members, as you mentioned, is everybody aligned or are there pretty fierce debates going on with, with that organization as well? I would say on 102 Avenue, DRC was pretty aligned. It uh, kind of reopening as it is right now. Um, <laughs> but that whole debate was way more divisive than I thought it would be publicly. And I think it hit some important issues and discussions about how we use our public space. Mm -hmm. And that's not a bad thing. From my perspective, and you know, we had some pretty hot discussions within our, our league as well, to be honest, on, on our board, is that consultation started in 2008 about that corridor. And since 2012 or 13, which is 10 years ago, this particular design was adopted. And not that you can't change things. And in fact, we, you know, that's probably good for council to look at new ideas uh, when they crop up. But I think for some of the businesses, they're kind of like, well, I thought it was going to be a certain way. And now it's a different way. And I think there was kind of a perfect storm with the safety issues, open drug use, and 102 Avenue became an unfortunate touch point for everyone's concerns about everything. <laughs> so talking about the debate itself, like I didn't think it was going to happen the way it did. A bunch of members got approached by a counselor about a different motion that was going to defer to the decision uh, for further consultation. You know, as a league, we're totally on board with more consultation if if necessary i thought that's what was going to happen and unfortunately council or fortunately depending on your perspective uh council decided to uh open it as is so i can provide that that perspective uh, you know and, and context uh hopefully that's that's a little bit helpful yeah that's helpful i'm wondering if you have any other hopes and dreams for downtown in the in the next few years that you want to share 
I hope we can get past having to talk about safety. I know we kind of touched on it here, but it has pros and cons. You know, I helped do some of the communications for the league too. And um, I think it has pros and cons to constantly talk about downtown in, in a negative light when, you know, people's experiences might differ. And hopefully we get to a point where it's more the perception issue that we have to deal with than the reality. Um, I think it's a bit of both right now. So I hope we can get past that and, and figure out some of these issues, attract more residential development, hopefully see more residential development happening here shortly. And, and like you said, the warehouse park is one of those things. I, I, I want to see the valley line up and running. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I think like some of the debate around 102 Avenue was a bit premature, con- considering we don't even know what it's going to be like when the, when the line's up and running. So uh, I'm looking forward to that as well. Well, now, normally on this podcast, we ask people about the Talus Dome as a good closing question. Given that you're downtown, I think there's a more appropriate uh, gauche public design to ask you about. And that's the bibliotank. Yeah, I put my design hat on here a little bit too. I think it hits some elements where like at the at grade experience is transparent. It's all glass and then you go inside and it's pretty amazing experience. But it does feel very overwhelming from the exterior and the, the cladding choice. And given that the architect has designed other things in Alberta and in Edmonton that are quite nice, I was a little bit surprised. So I would say overall, my my experience is still positive. But I think if anybody were to look at the building and you would tell them that it's the library, that might be a bit surprised. It's the military garrison, <laughs> downtown division. Yeah, yeah, downtown. exactly. <laughs> well, as a downtown resident, uh, let me say thank you, Chris, for your service on the community league for all these years uh you've been yeah like we said off the top involved in so many of the key discussions about downtown and the things that have shaped downtown in the last couple of decades it's uh not insignificant the amount of time and energy you've put in for free as a volunteer so thank you for that and it's not like you're disappearing or anything you're just past president now of decal but uh anything and any particular projects coming up for you specifically that you want to share um yeah, I just want to say thank you too, Matt, for your involvement with the league over the years and uh, hope to see you at the community garden. Uh, I oh, know yeah. that's, uh, you know, things are going to grow in there pretty, pretty soon. I mean, I'm really looking forward to the upgrades to Michael Fair Park and, and uh, Beaver Hills House Park. As I said, I've been working with uh, former councillor Michael Fair on upgrades to Michael Fair Park. So I think we're going to see those next year. And I think uh, that park is ready for a bit of renewal. And I was involved in the past uh, with Alfresco on 104th Street. So I'm looking forward to that coming back and all the festivals and that kind of thing and and sitting on a patio here shortly. Uh, This 30 degree weather is uh, (laughs) makes me want to go out and and sit on a patio. I hear you. One that might have been supported with a grant, which you can now do if you're a patio owner. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Chris. It was a pleasure, and uh, I'm sure we'll see you on a patio somewhere. Thank you for the invite. Well, our second guest this week, Troy teased that off the top here, is uh, Taproot's own reporter, Colin Gallant. Colin, welcome back to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. We wanted to talk to you this week because you published two stories, or you wrote two stories, 
related to airports. So one was about the Edmonton International Airport, which is projecting that they'll get 90% of their pre-pandemic passenger traffic by the end of the calendar year. So that's a good sign in terms of recovery, maybe not quite all the way to where they were in 2019, but on the way. And then the other story you published was about Sturgeon County and this push for the Villeneuve Airport area, which isn't, I suppose, technically about the airport. It's about the areas surrounding it, but it seemed like there's a lot of airport stuff happening this week for you. Yeah. And uh, both stories kind of uh, touched on uh, the Canadian Hydrogen Convention, which I also did some coverage of. Okay. So let's start with the international airport. 90% sounds good. I think in the story you report that we actually have more routes now than we did pre-pandemic. There's a whole bunch of things that have changed since the pre-pandemic. And one of them in particular is we have all these low-cost, ultra-low-cost airlines now. We have some other more premium options like Porter Airlines too. But what did you learn about the sort of mix of, uh, of airlines that are available to passengers now? Uh, well, I wanted to know about this because the CEO, Myron Keane, had talked about being a priority for him to, to lure these carriers to the airport uh, in other interviews that he did. But uh, if you're on Reddit or other social media, I think you'll see without naming any specific discount airline, sometimes customers are having really, really negative experiences. So I wanted to ask him about, you know, yes, we need to get these passengers back, but are we risking potentially alienating some passengers by working with carriers that don't necessarily have a mint reputation in the market? And he says that part of the reason why he's confident about working with these carriers is that Yeg is committed to working directly with airlines so that if there are issues in customer service, that it can be, you know, a team effort. He talked a lot about how things are a team effort between the different parts of the airport itself and the various stakeholders that operate there, like government agencies and whatnot. Uh, so he's committed to working with them to making sure that if something does go wrong, you know, it is handled appropriately. And he also thinks that there's a bit of uh, a gap in understanding because uh, low-cost carriers are new to Canada. And uh, Ryanair in Europe is, is a really popular example. And it, it's almost part of the brand that it is. You get so little for yeah. what you pay for, but what you pay is so little. So you know, with having so few airlines in Canada, uh, we're not necessarily used to that range of uh, what's included in service as uh, as maybe other markets are. I've never flown Ryanair, but I've heard it described as like they have plastic chairs and they just hose the plane down after every flight. I don't know if it's quite like that, but it's a very low cost uh, uh, experience for sure. I imagine it's the same appeal as you can get, you know, a cheeseburger that doesn't have any toppings, doesn't have any mustard. It's just bun cheese burger and you pay one dollar for it and there's a market for something like that yeah and to extend your metaphor just a little bit it's like the burger itself costs a dollar but a slice of tomato costs five dollars <laughs> the way some of these discount airlines work where it's like your your checked bag might be more expensive than your airfare which is like quite confusing I find as a consumer. One other quick thing I wanted to ask you about the uh, the international airport. Right at the end of your story, you have a, a line about cargo. And it's something that I've personally been interested in at the airport. And I've written a couple of things about this over the last year or two. Uh, but globally, cargo's down, but not at Yeg, right? That's what Myron Keane says, yes. Uh, any insight into what the airport is doing in Edmonton that is allowing it to continue you know, shipping more cargo? I mean, is it just that Edmontonians order a lot of stuff off Amazon? Yeah. <sighs> I'm not sure about uh, the Amazon of it all, but one thing I do know is that the airport received uh, a great deal of support uh, that they put towards both recovering the passenger rate and, and stimulating further growth of cargo. 
that was the Regional Air Services Opportunity Fund, uh, which 14 different municipalities, including Edmonton, um, all of them were the surrounding municipalities, of course, contributed about $15 million in 2021. That project was managed by Edmonton Global. So uh, they've been doing, they've been attracting uh, business uh, to the airport as, you know, use Edmonton as your route for cargo shipping. Um, I don't have details of the agreements they reached. Keen wouldn't really tell me about how the money was spent, but uh, I know that uh, that helped stimulate it. Well, good for the municipalities to see strong growth and recovery, because I know some of them are quite critical and even threatened to pull their funding, you know, at various points over the, the course of the pandemic. All right, your other story then was about a different airport, uh, and this is the Villeneuve Airport, and, and in particular the area around it. And Sturgeon County has been working on a plan for the development of that property. They're looking to turn it into, well, any number of things. It could be an innovation center, an agriculture center, an energy center. They've got lots of ideas, uh, but it seems like the plan has stalled, right? Not that I want to revoke anyone's Alberta card. Uh, I certainly know where Villeneuve is, but for the listener who doesn't, where is Villeneuve? Yeah, it's a bit northwest of the city. It's about a 40-minute drive from uh, Edmonton City Centre out to the Villeneuve Airport. Uh, it's within Sturgeon County and uh, just a bit west of St. Albert. And within Sturgeon County is why it's that municipality that's pushing this plan for development. And they don't have jurisdiction over the airport itself, but they do kind of around the, the lands around the airport. So uh, this plan that I mentioned that they've been looking to develop has, has stalled, right? Or it was actually, I guess, defeated at the Edmonton Metropolitan Region Board. Is that right? It was defeated, but with like several asterisks on that. Uh, most of the nay voters uh, specified that they are in principle in support of economic development for that area. The sticking point, primarily there were a few things, but the, the major one was adherence to the board's growth plan, which was approved in 2017 and is getting its five-year review this year. That review won't include major employment areas which is uh, something that currently they have no mechanics to change what they've zoned as major employment areas. They can't add new ones. They can't take old ones away, which does seem to be a bit of a bureaucratic problem that they may want to at least have the mechanism to be able to do such a thing. So Edmonton voted no about this, right? And it's for this reason? Yes, it's in part because of the major employment area. That was the primary reason that Mayor Sohi told me when I talked to him at the hydrogen conference. But um, his administration had other concerns uh, that were shared by other voting members, and those were a certain lack of detail on infrastructure uh, in terms of like, if we're going to be expanding the business activity in that area, it means people are going to have to be able to get to and from that area reliably. Uh, So that could mean roads or other types of infrastructure, uh, perhaps even transit. And the plan that was presented by Sturgeon County didn't have details on that. Now, Mayor Natchi would tell you that that's not how rural members make this type of plan, that this is one type of plan and that an infrastructure plan would come later in more detail and that what they voted on, it's like saying that you forgot to order dessert if you've just ordered your entree and you haven't looked at the dessert menu yet to further use food metaphors. I love the food <laughs> metaphors. It's yeah. great. But um, the other thing is that there's there's not an imminent investment. There aren't companies ready to sign agreements and spend money at this moment. And interestingly, a lot of the mayors who voted no uh, said that they would just flip their position right away if that were to happen, which to me, I found that to be somewhat strange because really they all cited the growth plan as number one. 
but suddenly if the money was there, it's like, well, I guess we can just contradict our growth plan if there's money to spend. <laughs> money talks, I guess. In describing this, I'm hearing a little bit of a uh, rural-urban schism in that Edmonton was the deciding vote that caused this to fail. Edmonton has outstanding power on this board, but the rural municipalities seem to have voted broadly differently than the more urban municipalities. Did you get a sense that there was a bit of a schism developing on the EMRB? A little bit, but mostly from Mayor Natchez's comments that she made. She seems to think that there's a lack of understanding and perhaps willful lack of understanding uh, from the urbans uh, versus the rurals where, you know, they didn't understand that this area structure plan wasn't necessarily something that would have the infrastructure piece because that's a difference in process of how uh, rural areas do planning versus urban areas. And she also thinks that the cities, the urbans, they're the ones who mostly have these major employment areas. And if we're designating new major employment areas, is that going to draw workers away? Is that going to draw companies away from setting up in, let's say, Leduc? And is there, you know, an an unstated uh, self-interest at play here? And that um, she's feeling that that is potentially uh, reality. I find this really interesting. This always comes up when we're talking about regional economic development, right? That, you know, will it take away from one or the other? And occasionally we hear leaders come together and say, well, a rising tide lifts all boats, right? And whether it goes there or here, it's great for, you know, everybody collectively in the region. And to the point where they've even talked about, you know, maybe splitting the tax revenue in some of those cases uh, for big projects that kind of are, are near um, borders where maybe the employment centers in one area and where people live is in, in another. But yeah, I just find it fascinating because if you're, a, if you're a petrochemical company or you're an oil company, you're probably going to the Alberta heartland, right? If you're an AI mm-hmm. company, you're probably coming to the city of Edmonton. I would imagine that there are certain types of organizations and investments that something like this Villeneuve area is more likely to attract than than other places. Though I suppose the, the biggest competitor might be, you know, the international airport, which would have larger but similar kinds of uh, potential opportunities, potential infrastructure. One thing I'll also note uh, in that I was doing Google Maps research again, because Villeneuve is not on my radar. At only a 10 minute drive from St. Albert, you may think, oh, well, this might pull people away from St. Albert. It might take away from St. Albert. But if you look at the satellite image of Villeneuve, it's a street. <laughs> Just the one. That's the town of Villeneuve. There is not the possibility. The hamlet, actually. It's a hamlet, right? A hamlet. Pretty small. Just yeah. like Sherwood Park, of course. Um, <laughs> but like, there's not a, the possibility that this couldn't lift all tides in the region. Because in order for people to work there, they do have to live somewhere. And it can't be Villeneuve. There's just not enough space. You mentioned in your story, Colin, that Mayor Natchew maybe threatened or was just using this as a negotiating tactic to leave the EMRB, which at first struck me as like, can she even do that? I don't know if they can do that. But then I read the next sentence and there's actual precedent for that. Yeah, there is precedent for that. And it was discussed at the meeting that Wheatland County was able to leave uh, Calgary's equivalent to the EMRB. And uh, in that case, uh, the mayors said that there, there was some imminent investment in Wheatland County, I couldn't find a corroboration of what that uh, specific investment was, but they made the case to the province and they, they lobbied for several years uh, saying that the cost of doing business as part of the Calgary Municipal Region Board is far outweighing the business opportunities that it's having to say no to or you know get everybody on their side to say yes to. 
And so the province ultimately did release them. Right now is obviously an interesting time. I don't know if it makes sense to be lobbying the current government when an election is just about to happen, although maybe it is a good time to shake uh, some people down who like to spend a lot of money on uh, big arenas. <laughs> I got to say, Wheatland County is the most Calgary area name you can come up with. <laughs> Groat Road is the most Edmonton road I've ever heard. <laughs> well, the Wheatland investment, I believe they probably were uh, referring to as the de Havilland airplane facility uh, that was approved for Wheatland County is expected along with a nearby food uh, facility in Strathmore. I think there was something like 1,500 jobs in that area. So it's quite significant for uh, a place like Wheatland County. What's next for this Villeneuve area structure plan, Colin? Uh, What's next for the Villeneuve airport area structure plan, which is a really fun and easy thing to say. It could potentially come back before the board as is. That could happen. Uh, usually the limit is you can only present uh, once per year and then you have to wait unless you're going to make changes to what you're presenting. However, uh, several of the mayors put forth motions. Uh, well, they, they they said they would put forth motions. They haven't done so yet. They may do so at the next meeting, which will be on the 12th of May. Uh, but they did say they would potentially put forth motions to A, potentially add a review of major employment areas to the upcoming review of the growth plan. B, uh, allow Sturgeon to bring back this um, REST uh, sooner than one year from now. Or C, potentially do a standalone review of the growth plan uh, section on major employment areas. Um, so those three things all could happen, and that depends on what happens on the 12th and in future meetings. All right. Well, thank you, Colin, so much for coming to talk to us a little bit about uh, your reporting. You can, of course, read all of the great uh, work that Colin's publishing at tapperedemonton.ca. Thanks so much for having me. As a final update this week, Mac, I'm very excited because Summer Streets are back. As we're recording this, Summer Streets have been installed on Saskatchewan Drive from 109th Street to 104th Street. And they'll be installed on 104th Street in Strathcona in the upcoming weeks, followed by Victoria Park Road later in the month. And I was very excited when I got this press release, though I did pause when I read in the press release that the Summer Streets will be installed on 104th Street from Saskatchewan Drive to 78th Avenue. For the most part, these sound like similar locations to what the city's run in the past. And you and I were talking, I think it might have been after we stopped recording last week, about how we were expecting an announcement. Like, where was the administration on shared streets? And now here they are. What what about that made you think? What, what are you saying here? Well, so people who are familiar with the area will notice almost immediately 78th Avenue is a weird choice. The bike lanes, the separated bike lanes, are on 76th Avenue, two blocks south, and a mere two and a half blocks south, the lane that they're repurposing for this share street ends at University Ave. So it doesn't make sense for there to be three blocks of no man's land that cars can't use and neither bikes can use, and it doesn't connect with the bike grid. It does sound like something the city would do, though, I have to say. Indeed, it does sound like that. And that was my first thought is like, you know, this is a bad choice by the city of Edmonton. And I roasted them on Twitter. But I'm like, yeah. you know what? Actually, some journalistic responsibility here. I'm going to reach out and see if this was an error. Uh, so I sent an email to the project team. They uh, went back and forth and said, mm, what's your press deadline? Uh, let me get an answer to you. I gave them today. And they did, in fact, reply. And turns out, they allege it was an error. And they are going to install the Summer Street all the way to University Ave the entirety of the 104th Street lane. 
Look at that accountability journalism having an impact. Well done, Troy. Yeah, I have to say, though, in their statement, uh, they sold this as a advantage. They said, quote, this year, the south limit of the Summer Street along 104 Street will be University Avenue. In 2022, the south limit was 78th Avenue. But this season, the city was able to adjust the Summer Street and detour bus routes from the transit access lane, end quote. They said this ostensibly... Kudos to us. We managed to improve it from last year by rerouting transit. This is better for everyone. Of course, Mac, last year I went to University Ave. I biked it <laughs> every week. This is just not true. Um, but thank you, City of Edmonton, for connecting the bike grid. Yeah, uh, doing the bare minimum here. But great to see uh, Summer Street's return. It is, I think, hopefully uh, a permanent thing that we'll see every year. It is nice to just get a little bit of extra space in some of these other areas. And if you want a little bit of extra news in your inbox every morning, you can subscribe to The Pulse. It's Taproot's daily news briefing. And it tells you everything you need to know about Edmonton every weekday morning. And there's short, informative updates about what's happening at City Hall. So you can just have your coffee and get all of the news. Then, at the end of the week, subscribe to the 30-Minute Podcast where we tell you why that news matters. It's like we've built this cohesive ecosystem. It's like it was planned or something. Of course, make your plan to head on over to taprootedmonton.ca and subscribe to The Pulse. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Chris. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.